Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. I'll explain a little of what we do. The main case we go over is a modern one, and then we have just a little bit of history for dessert as I try and find some similar murders from old newspaper accounts and read them to you. I hope you like it. Before we get right into the story, I want to ask you what got you into true crime. Was it a TV show, book, movie based on a true story? When did you start watching or listening? What TV show or book was it? I've talked about it here and there over many episodes, as there are a lot of things that led me here. I was reading mysteries from about the time that I could read. I was sure I would grow up to write murder mysteries like Agatha Christie. Then in middle school, I was sure I was going to write scary books like Stephen King, John Saul, and Dean Koontz. In high school, I was sure I would write both kinds of books. Anne Rule and Truman Capote were my very first true crime books. And Forensic Files, Cold Case Files, and Unsolved Mysteries were my first true crime shows. Please send me an email at host at cherryavenuetruecrime.com and let me know what got you interested. And let me know if I can share it on the show. You can also let me know how you would like me to use your name, as in first name, last initial, or just first name, or not at all. You can also send me a message on any of our social media accounts. Cherry Avenue is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'll put the email address in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Today's episode takes place in Canada. Missagua is a city of the Canadian province of Ontario. It is located on the shores of Lake Ontario. Toronto is to the east of this. Mississauga is considered part of the greater Toronto area. May 6, 1982. A business office in the front of a factory building gets a phone call. A man's voice tells the receptionist, Rose, that there is a body behind their building. The caller tells the receptionist, there is a dead body in the back of your lot. Now, I have had to answer the phones working in business offices many times over the years, and I have got some crank calls, but never that. The caller hangs up soon after telling her to please report it to the authorities. The receptionist, we're calling her Rose, since that is what they called her in a show that I'll tell you about later. So Rose tells another employee what the caller said about the body, and he says that is weird and for sure he thinks it's a prank. I know I would go check. I would most likely make someone go with me, though. When the receptionist goes to check, she sees something in the weeds behind the building, but it's far back and she can't make out what it is. She gets closer, and it is a body. Police come out and find the body of a deceased young woman, signs of sexual assault and extreme violence. The detective on this case says this is one of the more violent crimes he had ever seen. He said it went way beyond what was typical of a sexual assault, murder. An hour later, the receptionist gets another call. This is after the body's been found. It's the same man who told her to go look for the body. And he says, The future is uncertain, the end is always near, and you too are going to die. At some point, the caller says his name is Fred, or the police decide to call him Fred for easier reference, but... This will help as we go on because the caller likes attention. Police come in and put a tap on the phone, and they tell 
Rose that when he calls, they need to keep Fred on the phone for as long as possible so that they can trace the call. So Fred calls again, saying that he put dynamite in the building. They have three minutes before it goes off. The receptionist tries to keep him talking, but is not able to keep him on the line long enough for a trace. The police don't believe there's a bomb. That is most likely a diversion, but they have to be careful. They ask the receptionist to stay with him a bit longer. The caller calls again, and this time he is trying to convince Rose that the bomb is real and it's time to go. It works out to be just enough time to trace the call. The cops take her outside in case there really is a bomb, but it never goes off. The call is traced to the next business building behind the one that Fred called. They don't want to alert whoever is calling from there that they are on to him, so they wait until night and take a tour of the building when everyone is gone. In the meantime, authorities put together that a teenage girl from the area was reported missing just the night before, when the murder would have taken place. The description matched up so close that they had to go out and talk to the parents. The girl was only 16, Darlene Priorello, known as Dolly. After talking to her mother and going over clothing and jewelry, they tell her mom that they are fairly certain it is her daughter. She is ID'd by her mother. Darlene had last been seen by her boyfriend, so they go to talk to him. Her boyfriend said he walked her to the bus stop after they watched a movie together. They talked about the movie while they waited. The bus was late, so he left her at the bus stop and did not see her get on. Even though it was weird that he hadn't waited to see her get on the bus, they were able to clear him as a suspect. Later, when they go into the company building that they traced the phone call to, it is empty. Everyone had gone home for the workday. They took a tour with a security guard who pointed out the phones that could have been used. While looking, they find a workstation that has a similar quote to what Fred said to Rose on the phone. The future is uncertain. The end is always near. That's a pretty good lead. They were fairly sure they knew who it was then, but they had to be certain and needed more evidence. They put a surveillance on him. The next day, the Priorello family got a phone call from a creepy male voice saying that he killed Darlene. Authorities consider that this could be a prank call, or it could be the same caller, Fred, from the company building where the crime scene was. They also had a list of violent sex offenders that they were looking at. One of them was a guy known as the Mississauga Rapist. He had recently escaped during a transfer from a psychiatric assessment. This was a high-profile offender who should be in jail but had escaped. Ronald Brian Perkins. He is on the loose and they have to try and find him although they are not certain he is the man they are looking for for this murder. They know the killer likes attention. He has been calling. They decide to put something out in the press to get him to contact them. They put Ronald Brian Perkins' photo out and hold a news conference saying they are looking for him. They put out an award for anything leading to his capture and arrest. This got a lot of attention in the media. Newsreels of when Perkins was first arrested were played on air, as well as a rundown of his attacks on women. The guy, Fred, who had called Rose about the body, started to call again. He made calls to the cemetery, funeral parlor, and Darlene's school. He also called a journalist and told him that he killed Darlene and he would kill again if they didn't stop him. He finally called the police station and told them he had a present waiting for them at the library. There was a package waiting for the investigator at the library, just as Fred had said. The librarian said it was left in the return bin, addressed to the investigator. The package was brought back to the station. 
Inside was a lighter and a necklace belonging to Darlene. There was also a multiple-page letter with the complete account of the homicide. The caller had never known what the investigators had done behind the scenes. Going to the company he worked for, finding the quote written on a dry erase board at his workstation. They did put wiretaps on the phone in his residence, and he was on a 24-hour surveillance. Because of this, they were able to get him. They had followed him while delivering the package. They had the phone call saying he left the package for them at the library. And they had a full confession written in the letter in that package. They went and arrested David James Dobson. He was just 17 years old. 17. Are you kidding me? This crime looks like something someone who had been killing for years had done. 17. Darlene was just 16 years old when she was raped, tortured, choked, and bludgeoned to death with a concrete brick on May 6, 1982 after being abducted by 17-year-old David James Dobson. The autopsy listed the cause of death as a fractured skull and asphyxiation. No doubt, I'm sure, in anyone's mind that had he not been caught then, he would have gone on to do many more murders. At 17, most of the horribly sick offenders of this caliber would have been peeping in windows or some other disgusting beginner-type stuff. In the letter in the box, or in another one that was sent to police, Dobson had wrote, I won't strike again until next year at the same time. Set up your bait and try to catch me. Thankfully, they didn't have to do that. Once in custody, he repeated what he had already confessed in the package. He had picked her up at the bus stop. He took her to the factory because he knew no one would be there. He attacked her, raped her, he bludgeoned her. He talked very matter-of-factly as he described the brick he meant to use on her and finding the even bigger brick that he did use. When asked why he did it, he said he thought he would get in trouble and she would say he raped her. So he killed her a 17-year-old, and a 16-year-old. Likely, Darlene thought he was safe because he was about the same age as her. How horrible. Imagine you have to tell Darlene's parents it was a 17-year-old boy who killed your teenage daughter. Imagine the parents of the 17-year-old boy having to come to grips with them actually telling you that, yes, he killed this girl. The 17-year-old boy they thought they knew but had no idea. Investigators had David James Dobson tell his parents just what he told them. Later in his parole hearing in 2007, Dobson did volunteer some type of explanation by saying he had been abusing drugs and alcohol, had depression over his dysfunctional childhood, and also had been rejected by a girlfriend shortly before the murder. It later came out that Dobson had a history of torturing small animals and tearing the wings off of birds. My God, how absolutely grotesque and horrific. He was obviously an extremely disturbed young man. God only knows what other horrors he would have gone on to do. The investigation team got fingerprints off the body and were able to take that with everything else to trial. All the calls, the package, the letter with the confession, the in-person confession. And after his arrest, they also found the brick that Dobson used to kill Darlene with. It still had blood and hair on it. First-degree murder. He got first-degree murder, minimum 25 years in jail. A very good sentence for Canada. In a 1998 interview, Dobson said he found prison life to be comfortable. 
In 2007, David James Dobson was denied parole. The victim's family were relieved. Terry, Darlene's sister, said about Dobson, he's cold. His eyes were the most horrible eyes I've ever looked into in my life. At the time in 2007, they said that Dobson had to wait two more years before he could apply to be released from a medium security prison. He was denied parole again and again. In 2004, David James Dobson was transferred to a minimum security prison, but the Priorello family, with the help of Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime, persuaded officials to return him to the medium security Bath Institution. There is an episode on a show called The Case That Haunts Me. The episode is called Stranger Calling. It's an ID show, and I caught it on Hulu. The whole series of episodes are great, excellent actors that I recognize from other places. Stories are told in a compelling way, and I recommend all of the episodes in this show, but especially this one, of course, um, if you want to check it out and see how they, uh, how they did it. They did a great job on this case. This case that haunts me, Stranger Calling, and I will put that in the show notes for you. On a side note, Ronald Brian Perkins, the infamous rapist that escaped shortly before Darlene was murdered, was eventually found in June of 1989. He had been on the loose for more than seven years after his escape. He was traced from Canada to Tampa, Florida. He was wanted for 13 sexual assaults from April of 1980 to January 1981 in and around the Toronto area. At the time of his capture in 1989, they suspected him of being connected to unsolved rapes in Tampa, as you can imagine. I was unable to find many cases where a mysterious caller called in and actually reported there was a body to find and where it was. I did find one, though, that was big news for its time. And it is bizarre. Stay tuned for the story. It was 1968, February 27th, 1968. The main headline said, Phone Call Began Bizarre String of Events, Thursday, February 8th, Manhunt Followed. Subheadline, Search Underway Here for Slayer of Two Women, Tip to Newsmen, Leads Officers to Scenes. And sub-subheadline says, The caller was calm, his message, murder. The voice on the telephone was that of a calm, apparently rational man, possibly middle-aged. I'm going to give you three stories, he said. On the first sheet, the caller said, write the following. Go to the junior high school to the chain gang road. Follow the road toward the chain gang to the second bridge. You will see a dirt road. Turn off on it. Go up to the top of the hill. Turn left and go to the edge of the woods. Stop the car. Get out. Face towards I-85 and walk one quarter of a mile through the woods, down one hill and to the top of another. Look for a pile of brush. Then without wasting any time, he, the caller told him to take out another sheet of paper and said, on the second sheet, put on it, go to the bridge on the Old Fork Road, look in the water on the downhill side. He then instructed the newspaper man to write the following on the third sheet. March 1967, Jerusalem Road, Union County, Annie Louise Dedman, Spindale, N.C., this is all he ever said about sheet number three. Go back to the sheet number one and write the name Nancy Christine E. Smith Street. Go back to sheet number two and write the name Nancy Carol Paris, 
Chaltom Avenue. He then told him, get the sheriff to go with you and you will find two bodies at the locations I have given you. This is not a crank call, he added. This was in the Gaffney Ledger and written by Bill Gibbons. He went on to tell about how after he contacted the sheriffs, what happened. When I called Sheriff Julian B. Wright away from his lunch, he too thought it was the work of pranksters, but added that this was the kind of thing that had to be checked out. Neither of the four men who went in the sheriff's car to the Ford Road scene furnished us by the caller thought we would find anything more than the usual. It wasn't the work of pranksters. The call was for real. Surprised and shocked officers and a stunned reporter gazed over the railing of the small bridge spanning People's Creek. There, completely unclad, lay the body of a young woman. Her body lay mostly on the bank, but her face was in the water. It wasn't until later we realized that the caller had identified the body correctly, Nancy Carroll Paris. Now that we knew the caller was half right, we feared and we hoped against hope that he wasn't right about the second part of the message. No one doubted, I think, that the caller was right. We were all fairly certain that a second body would be found when we searched the woods near the chain game. This article is uh, much longer than that. I'm just reading excerpts of it. They found the second body, and he goes on to describe how Deputy Coyle kicked off a part of the brush and saw a portion of another body. A young girl lay face up, hands to her side, her nude body bearing several scratches and abrasions, like the first, a deep blue-red bruise around her neck. The caller had given the first two names of the second victim, Nancy Christine, but he had not given the last name Einhardt. He had said she lived on E. Smith Street and was about two blocks off this since the youth lived on East Montgomery. I might not have been the only one to hear the caller's voice, said Bill Gibson, the newspaper reporter. Ledger receptionist Pat Ellis said a man called a few minutes earlier and seemed very anxious to talk to the man that used to write sports. I had not come in at the time, so she asked him to call back. We skip over to this another article written on the same day. Subheadline is nude strangled bodies found six miles apart. A massive investigation continued today into the strangulation deaths of two young Gaffney women. An anonymous call to Ledger Managing Editor Bill Gibson about 12.20 p.m. Thursday led Cherokee County Sheriff's officers to the nude bodies of 14-year-old Nancy Christine Reinhardt of Montgomery Street and 20-year-old Nancy Carol Paris of Chatham Avenue. The Paris woman's body was found under the bridge on the Old Ford Road about three miles east of Gaffney. The body of the Reinhardt youth was found covered over with brush deep in the woods off the Chain Gang Road about three miles northwest of Gaffney. An autopsy revealed that both had been strangled. The anonymous caller told the newsman to take three sheets of paper and write down three stories that he would give him. Sheriff Wright said the body at the Ford Road location would likely have been discovered in a short time. However, he said he thought it would have been a long time before the Reinhardt girl's body would have been found, if ever. Sheriff Wright said his department and SLED agents were following up every lead and urged anyone having any information that might be in the slightest way connected with the slayings to notify his office. Bill Gibbons goes on to describe in another article in the same newspaper on the same day about how this man called him at home later. It says, This is the man who called you before, the voice said on my home telephone Monday night about 9.15. 
in his same calm, deliberate manner as before, he began. We're going to have to do something about that man down yonder serving my sentence. He was speaking of Roger Dedman, who is serving 18 years on the Union County work gang for the murder of his wife. I killed Mrs. Dedman, just like I did Mrs. Paris and Reinhardt. I killed them with them all begging me not to do it, he added. He wanted to talk about the Deadman slaying. The Deadman girl was driving at a high rate of speed when she passed me at Linder's Vineyard. She was driving a red Ford with a left rear tail light out. He, Deadman, passed out in the car. I was behind her as she started back toward Gaffney. He left out any mention of how he stopped the car or how he might have gone about the crime he was confessing to. She had on blue shoes, size 5. She had a blue pocketbook with a snap top. In it was lipstick, an aluminum comb, a picture of a girl sitting on the back of a white falcon, car keys, a watch, which had no band on it. She had the band broken when she and her husband had a scuffle. She wore an open-bottom dress with a lot of frills, no coat, stockings. I took her body to Union County to throw suspicion off Cherokee County. I laid her below the transformers on the old Jerusalem road with her head downhill. Her eyes were still open. He mentioned that the Deadman woman said she had a relative with a, who was a policeman. He's sure to get you, the caller quoted the woman as saying. Police say that the caller could have gotten this information at the inquest, trial, or from some news stories. They say that the caller's information would have had to be more specific to prove any implication in the Deadman killing. He still wanted to talk about the Deadman case while I tried to talk to him about the other killings. The same weapon was used in all three deaths, he said. What weapon, I asked. That would give me away, was his answer. I asked, don't you think you ought to come in and give yourself up? I'll get the chair now. They'll get me. You need help. You might not get the chair at all, I said. Yeah, I'll get the chair, he said. The caller said he had the hands and feet tied in all three cases. I asked him, where did you pick up the Paris girl? That would give me away, he answered. What about the Reinhardt girl, I asked. She had been dead a week. I have been back to the gravesite seven or eight times. You have some feelings, I said, or you wouldn't be concerned about Deadman. Why don't you give yourself up? They'll have to shoot me like the dog I am, he said. You need help, and we'll try to help you, I pleaded with the man. I'm psycho, he said. The only reason I am telling you this is to get the other boy, Deadman, out. He's serving my time. I'll be in, he said, but if they don't catch me, there'll be more dust. There was no doubt that this man was the same one who placed the first call last Thursday. This article is in the same newspaper. It's written by Roger Zane, and its uh, headline is Deadman Able to Smile? Question mark. And it says, Deadman, 28, had reason to smile Thursday for the first time since March 20th of last year when he was arrested for the murder of his wife. A little over two months ago, he walked sadly and resolutely into a prison camp near here to begin serving an 18-year sentence for the murder. Police said he had confessed to slaying his 33-year-old wife, Annie Lucille Hyatt T. Deadman. She had been strangled and dumped on a road between here and Gaffney. But Deadman steadfastly maintained his innocence during the trial in Union County General Sessions Court. A new twist turned up in the case Thursday when an anonymous caller tipped a Gaffney newsman on the whereabouts of two nude young women. Both had been strangled recently and dumped into the woods near Gaffney. The caller also implied knowledge of the Deadman murder. The last time I saw my wife, Deadman said, was the night of March 1st when we stopped in Gaffney at a donut shop to get some sandwiches. When I came out, she was not in the car. I really didn't think about it too much at the time because she has left me like that before. 
I waited around about 15 minutes and then drove back to Spindale. Court testimony revealed Dedman and his wife had been at a restaurant night spot, a restaurant night spot on Highway 18 prior to going to, to, going to Gaffney for sandwiches. Dedman said he had drunk five or six beers and about four drinks of whiskey. He and his wife had argued and she had scratched him, he testified. So this case, there's been a lot of, when I looked it up, there was a, it was featured in a crime to remember in 2015 called Lock Up Your Daughters. It was a pretty, pretty big case for its time. On February 27, 1968, they got the man that, the caller, the man that did all of this. His name was Leroy Martin, and he had anonymously called Bill Gibbons. February 13, 1968, a 15-year-old named Opal Diane Buxton went missing. She was abducted and thrown in the trunk of her car, um, and she was at a bus stop with her sister, so her sister was a witness to this, and she gave a description of the vehicle to the authorities. Police found Buxton's body in a wooded area several days later. There were indications of a struggle, and she had been strangled and stabbed to death. On the morning of February 13th, Local residents Henry Tranzo and Lester Skinner were patrolling the area looking for a car that matched the description given over the radio by local police. Within hours of the abduction, they saw a car back down a dirt path in a heavily wooded area and a man standing beside it. When they drove by, the man quickly got inside and drove away. They wrote down the vehicle's plate numbers and reported what they had seen to the police. Investigators later found Buckskin's body nearby to where Martin's car had been spotted. Martin was arrested on February 27, 1968. The sheriff took evidence from Martin and questioned him. Martin directed them to the location of the bodies. However, in the process, Martin was not given adequate right to counsel, and so authorities did not seek the death penalty. But he was convicted of first-degree murder in the deaths of Dedman, Paris, Reinhardt, and Buxton. He received four life terms. And then after his arrest, Roger Dedman, who was three months into his prison sentence, was released from the Union County Prison Camp on March 1, 1968. All charges against him in the murder of his wife were dropped. In prison interviews and in discussions, Leroy Martin said that he had a split personality, including a violent side, that took control of him. On May 31, 1972, while incarcerated at Central Correctional Institution in Columbia, Martin was stabbed to death by fellow inmate Kenneth Marshall Rumsey. Rumsey later died by suicide in prison. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please rate and review, tell a friend, and or join us on social media. We are also on Patreon at patreon.com, Cherry Avenue True Crime. That's patreon.com slash Cherry Avenue True Crime. You can email me at host at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Cherry Avenue True Crime. Visit our website at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. The sources for today's show are ID Show, The Case That Haunts Me, Stranger Calling. Other sources, toronto.ctvnews.ca, Gaffney Ledger in South Carolina, and Wikipedia. <laughs>